You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, episode number 58. Hey guys, happy Monday. This is the second to last episode that is scheduled for this fabulous year we've been having. That's sarcasm. Not a fabulous year, but <laughs> this is the second to last episode. We have one more episode for the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast to wrap up 2020, but I thought I would do this one solo. Um, so we are throwing it back. I used to do these episodes all the time before I had my second child <laughs> back when I was pregnant, but we are doing an extended Q&A today, guys. What I've done is I took a bunch of your questions from story questions that you submit every week, and I just plopped a bunch of them, wrote a bunch of them down, and we are just going to rapid fire kind of go through them. So we are going to talk about everything from advice on choosing a pediatrician, fetal hiccups, baby dropping, if your water breaks, you know, kind of what to do about that and what happens at the hospital. We're going to talk about stations, how long your cervix stays dilated at 10 centimeters once it fully opens, lightning crotch, breastfeeding with implants, and lots more. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where we firmly believe in the power of education when it comes to giving birth. Tune in each week as we dive into pregnancy-related topics, expert interviews, and a variety of birth stories. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Please see mommylabornurse.com slash disclaimer for more details. And now, here's your host, educator, registered nurse, and fellow mom, Liesl Teen. This episode of the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast was brought to you by Kindred Bravely. Like motherhood itself, Kindred Bravely is built on love, a love that is poured into every piece of clothing that they bring to life. Their clothes are meticulously designed to make your motherhood journey easier from the bump to the breast and beyond. You deserve to look and feel great all of the time. I'm a big fan of Kindred Bravely. I just shared in my stories this weekend that Kindred Bravely sent me some fancy new stuff. They sent me this bra that I'm really, really uh, a big fan of. It's like a, su a supportive bra, but it's also comfy. It doesn't have any underwire in it. Um, and it's a nursing bra. The one they sent me is called the Marvella Everyday Nursing T-Shirt Bra. And it's definitely one of my favorites right now. They also sent me some super cute PJs, some postpartum cropped lounge pants, an everyday nursing and maternity t-shirt, which I'm actually currently wearing right now, a little bamboo nursing and maternity nightgown, and some reusable nursing pads. I have a good bit of Kindred Brilly stuff in my closet right now, so I'm very familiar with <laughs> their brand and their quality of clothes. And I gotta say, guys, quality is top notch with Kindred Bravely. You're never going to get a bad piece of clothing from them. So if you are interested in anything Kindred Bravely, you can use my code MLN20 to save 20% on any of their stuff. Just head over to kindredbravely.com and use the code MLN20. And now let's get into today's episode. Hey guys, so like I said in the intro, it's been a while since I've done one of these solo episodes, so bear with me. <laughs> So yeah, what I've done is I've just taken a bunch of your questions that you've given me from story questions and written them all down, and we're just going to kind of go through them. So the first one is any advice on choosing a pediatrician? So yes. Yeah, so first of all, let me share with you how I chose my pediatrician and kind of my 
also my pediatrician situation because I don't even see the same pediatrician that I initially chose back when I was pregnant with my first one with Walter. So personally, what I did when I was pregnant with Walter is I went to a bunch of tours, went to a, you know, a bunch of tours in the area. I live in a pretty big, you know, bigger town. So there's a bunch of choices. So I just, you know, went to a bunch of tours and asked a bunch of questions. And I finally came to one that I felt comfortable with. And there were a bunch of locations in the area that were super convenient. And I just felt like I liked them at the time. So over the course of Walter's first year, um, you know, you take your baby to the pediatrician every few months. I was taking him more in that, you know, in that those first couple months when he was having his weight issues. But you're you're in there pretty often. And I always went to the same location and I always saw a different provider. I tried to see the same provider a few times, but she was always kind of running behind. So they had to kind of flip flip flop me around. So I was always seeing a different person. I felt like it was very quick and I wasn't, uh, I was, you know, asking questions and sometimes one person would say one thing, sometimes one person would say another thing. So I felt like I wasn't really getting taken seriously there. (laughs) And I'm not going to name the practice in case you are in Raleigh, but... (laughs) But yeah, just wasn't a huge fan after going, to, you know, to a, to visits throughout his his first year. Um, so after his first year, I started to do my search again and ask other moms, ask advice from other people where they where they took their babies, you know, and how they liked, you know, their pediatricians. And I actually finally found a place that is a family practice in the area. I will say the name of this one. It's the Fisher Clinic um, in Raleigh, in downtown Raleigh. And I see both of my son's pediatricians and they treat my children too. So I got that recommendation from someone and it just kind of fit. I felt like when I met him, he just really took me seriously. And I actually felt like he was listening to me when I was speaking to him. Um, Not to super bash, you know, the other practice, but I did kind of feel like there was always a computer in front of me. And the provider was always kind of like half listening to me half typing on the computer, which I understand that you have to do when you're taking an intake. But just it was just a different vibe. So that's kind of a long intro to this question, but that was my experience, how I chose a pediatrician. With that said, let me give you some other tips when it comes to choosing a pediatrician. So first of all, what you should take from that little story that I told you is you can go through, you know, leaps and all these leaps and bounds choosing a pediatrician, but you might decide after you actually have your baby that you're not a big fan. And that's okay. And you can always change pediatricians, just like you can always change your OB or your doctor or anybody. You can always change your pediatrician, and that's fine. And that's personally what I did. So that's okay. Um, Another tip is think about location. Okay, so personally, I I live about five minutes from the pediatrician. Now the you know, my pediatrician that I love my family practice pediatrician that I love and I see now. Um, But think about location and think about where you are. Sometimes that's not totally in your control. If you live, if you live somewhere where just all the locations are really far from you. But think about location. You know, I know that that is 
sometimes worth its weight in gold to be five minutes down the road to the pediatrician versus like a 30-minute drive. So location is certainly important. Um, another tip that I tell people is to ask your OB or your midwife or, you know, where you are, where you're being seen during your pregnancy. A lot of times they have recommendations because, you know, because everybody in that practice is eventually going to use a pediatrician. So a lot of times the OBs or the midwives know good pediatricians in the area and give, can give you um, good recommendations. Another thing you want to think about when you're picking a pediatrician is how the practice operates and uh, what their hours are like. Okay, if you're somebody that it's really important uh, for you to have weekend hours, you know, some practitioners are good and they have weekend hours where they can see your baby on the weekend if need be or in the evening or they have on-call hours. Like I love my family practice now because I can literally call him on the week, you know, he's on call all the time on the weekend. So I can just call him if I have a question. But some pediatricians are not like that. Some only offer, you know, very specific times on the weekend or for emergency visits. So just be mindful of that. And then finally, I mean, I think this is just what everybody does, but it's worth saying is talk to your friends and family, talk to people who talk to other people who have kids in the area and get recommendations. You don't have to go with, you know, the first one that you find. Um, but yeah, just talking to other moms. Maybe it's somebody that you work with. You know, you're talking to your coworkers who have kids and they're giving you a pediatrician recommendations or it's other friends. But, you know, word of mouth recommendations are always a, a good bet, too. All right. Question two. Is it standard to have to lie down to push? My doctor told me I couldn't deliver while I was standing or squatting. So this one depends. Okay. I'm going to first say no, it is not standard to have to lie down to push, okay? But there are some providers still out there that all they know how to deliver a baby is when mom is flat on their back, pulling their legs back and, you know, delivering on their back like that. And especially if this person saying, my doctor told me I couldn't deliver while standing or squatting, she may have a provider that is one of those providers that is a little bit more old school and, you know, really only knows how to deliver babies like this. With that also said, this may also have been said to uh, this person asking the question, maybe she was planning on getting an epidural in labor and her provider said, oh, you know, you can only push push lying down on your back instead of standing or squatting. Now with an epidural, you probably can't stand to have a baby, but you certainly can squat. That's That's a position that you certainly can have a baby in if you have an epidural. So that might also have been somewhat, you know, what the provider was saying. You know, the doctor told me I couldn't deliver while standing or squatting. But I'm thinking that this provider just isn't super uh, educated on that women can have babies in positions other than just being on their backs. So to answer your question, no, it is not standard to have to lie down to push. You can push in, especially pushing, you can push in any position that you, that feels good. Okay. As long as you are stable and baby is stable and it feels good in the position that you are in to push, can keep on pushing. Okay. Now, with that said, 
sometimes with pushing, this is aside from the question that was asked, but sometimes with pushing, this is what I tell patients sometimes if they're pushing in one position, let's say they're pushing, they're squatting and they're pushing and they're not making a whole lot of progress. And sometimes I'll say, "Mm, you know, let's try side lying or let's try on your back for a little bit and see if that feels good. And all of a sudden, you know, they start sideline pushing, they start going on their back, or they start doing hands and knees pushing, and they start making a whole lot of progress. So that's great. You know, we want to have we want to make progress to have a baby. But we also want to push in comfortable, comfortable is a relative word, but we also want to push in relatively comfortable positions. So just keep that in mind, too, when you go into deliver that if your L&D nurse or your provider is suggesting a position, you certainly don't have to move into that pos- position, but sometimes we're suggesting different positions uh, to help you, you know, possibly progress a little bit quicker. Now, regarding epidurals, okay, I get this question a lot of the time when people bring up epidurals and is it okay to push on you know, not on my back if I have an epidural. So typically, yes, okay, epidurals, unless you have a really, really crazy, crazy dense epidural and you can't move your legs at all, which is actually pretty rare. Usually most women can move their legs around. Um, You can at least do squatting or side-lying or even hands and knees pushing, okay? Really the only position that you probably can't do if you have an epidural is stand up because your legs might just, you know, give out. But you have an epidural, you can do all of those other positions in the bed with assistance. So next question is, is it normal for Braxton Hicks to slow down? I had them more often last month. So I've heard this before from some people saying that, oh, I felt way more Braxton Hicks, you know, in my fifth month versus my sixth month or my seventh month, seventh month versus my eighth month. It can be normal. Sometimes I think it has to do with some confusion too. So it, you know, sometimes people think that the Braxton Hicks they're having are Braxton Hicks, when in fact, it's actually baby moving. Another common thing that I've seen happen like over the summer. So if you're pregnant in the summer, and then the seasons kind of change, and it gets a little bit colder, you might be a little bit more dehydrated um, during the summer months when it's getting hot, and maybe you're not up on your water intake. And if you're not super, super hydrated during pregnancy, that can really cause some Rex and Hicks contractions to happen. So those are just a couple reasons why that might happen, but it's certainly normal for them to kind of come and go and for you to kind of feel them more sometimes and feel them less sometimes. I wouldn't say they gradually increase towards labor. It's kind of different for everyone. All right, next question is fetal hiccups. When do I worry? I'm 31 weeks. So don't worry, fetal hiccups are very, very normal. I think there's some weird old wives tale that fetal hiccups, if you're feeling, you know, the baby have hiccups, it's a danger to baby. And that is just simply not true. So as baby is developing, their diaphragm's developing, they are practicing their breathing and they're moving, you know, they're bound to get hiccups. Sometimes they are felt, you know, you're feeling hiccups. And I always described hiccups as, you know, you feel kicks, okay, they kind of feel not uh, very rhythmic, okay, kicks are just kind of random. And hiccups are more rhythmic, okay, they're coming every few seconds, and it's very light uh, pressure, if that makes sense. It's like a light tap. Sometimes 
I even could describe it as like an air puff. <laughs> if that if I know that's really weird, but it's like a little air puff inside your belly uh, every few seconds. That is what fetal hiccups to me felt like. So yeah, super normal. Don't ever worry about them. If baby is having hiccups, they're just a normal baby and they're developing and there is no need to worry. All right, next question. Third pregnancy, 37 weeks. Baby has not dropped yet. Previous babies have dropped early. Is this normal? Yes. So every baby drops, quote unquote, drops at a different stage of pregnancy, different week, different day. Some babies don't drop until labor until they're coming on out. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you've dropped in your previous pregnancies. This pregnancy is completely different. And this baby may be positioned completely different in your belly. So it is completely reasonable for baby, you know, not to drop in the same way this time as your previous pregnancies. All right, next question is, if my water breaks and I go to the hospital, am I stuck in the bed? No, absolutely not. So if your water breaks, you do absolutely want to call your provider and go into the hospital, but we're not going to strap you to the bed unless, you know, you're really high risk and you're, you know, maybe you're preterm and you're on medication or something like that. But if you're term and your water just broke first and you're not having contractions, you come into labor. No, you're certainly not strapped to the bed. Um, We'll put a pad on you and you can walk around if you want to. (laughs) Um, You can do whatever kind of position you want to. You might get some water on the floor or water somewhere else. (laughs) But uh, no, no need to be confined to the bed if your water's broken, unless, like I said, you're in that high risk category. All right, next question is, have you had any moms with polycystic kidney disease have a successful vaginal delivery without a C-section? It's a fun fact. One of my good friends actually has polycystic kidney disease. (laughs) Um, So I'm somewhat familiar with it. So for those of you who don't know what polycystic kidney disease is, it's it's, I mean, pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's just a disorder where like little cysts, clusters of cysts develop within your kidneys and they can cause your kidneys to get bigger and lose function over time. But they just, you know, it's where you have these like these cysts on your kidneys. There's a wide range of normal when it comes to this diagnosis. So some people with polycystic kidney disease are going to have it very mildly and they're not really going to have any issues. It's not going to affect, you know, any other organs in their body. Some people are going to have polycystic kidney disease and eventually, you know, have to have a, a transplant or have to go on medication or, you know, develop really high blood pressure or have lots of issues with their kidneys and have to go on dialysis or, you know, issues like that. So in regards to pregnancy and labor, most people with polycystic kidney disease are going to have perfectly normal pregnancies and perfectly normal, normal labor patterns. It doesn't affect labor at all. The only issue that may arise is if you have, if you're one of more of the severe cases um, and it's giving you issues during pregnancy, most of the time what people see is they will have high blood pressure during the pregnancy if they have this. So when we talk about high blood pressure, you know, you may be at a little bit higher risk of having a C-section because of 
that reason, but just purely having polycystic kidney disease during pregnancy, if you have nothing else really going on, it doesn't, as far as I know, increase your risk for having a C-section. And to answer the person's question, have I actually had a mom with polycystic kidney disease have a successful vaginal delivery? I don't believe that I have actually had a patient. If I have, I don't remember it uh, sig- like in a significant way that, oh, she has polycystic kidney disease and she's having a C-section because of, because of that. Um, but I do know that it does not increase your risk at all unless it develops, unless it's giving you something like high blood pressure during your pregnancy. All right, next question is three and a half months postpartum, normal delivery, vaginal delivery, having white glass-like discharge in vagina. Is this normal? So I'm assuming when you say glass-like discharge, (laughs) it's like just clear discharge, right? Okay, so that's like that slimy kind of like ovulation discharge. That's what what I'm thinking when this person is saying glass-like discharge. So three and a half months postpartum, this can be normal. Okay, discharge, there's a wide range of discharge and what normal discharge is when you, anytime, okay, but especially during postpartum. If you are not breastfeeding or if you are breastfeeding and you're not doing it as much around this time, you know, this may be a sign that your body is ovulating, okay, that you're having this change in discharge, so you may be getting your period in a couple weeks. Um, breastfeeding also does some wacky things to our bodies, okay? <laughs> and one of those being our discharge, okay? So if you're breastfeeding, there can be just sort of this evolving cycle weirdness about your discharge. You might have vaginal dryness one week. You might have an excess of vaginal discharge the next week. So if you are still breastfeeding and you're having discharge changes, it might have something to do with that. Another thing to say about this too is if you are having any sort of odor or itching or things just aren't looking right, it's like a a whole lot of excess of discharge, you may want to bring this up to your provider because it could be a sign of a yeast infection. But just purely white glass discharge that smells fine and it's a fine you know it's a normal amount for you probably normal and we will get right back into today's episode after a quick break from this week's sponsor this week's episode was also brought to you by eucora do you know how to spell that it's u q o r a eucora is an effective way to flush out uti causing bacteria have you heard of them Eucora flushes out new bacteria introduced to the urinary tract after activities like sex or exercise. You can drink after the activities that trigger your UTIs. Eucora binds to bacteria and increases urinary flow to flush bacteria out. It also alkalizes the urine, which slows bacterial growth and also boosts your immune system. And it's super gummy, I promise. I've drank quite a bit of it. UTIs, unfortunately, are all too common in pregnancy and in postpartum. So get proactive about urinary tract health with Eucora. Right now, Eucora is offering 30% off to Mommy Labor Nurse listeners when you go to eucora.com slash mommy. That's U-Q-O-R-A dot com slash mommy. 
And now let's get right back into this week's episode. All right, next question. Is it true that you must wake up to do a night feed to keep your milk supply up? And what time you should you do this at night? So this is imperative in those first few weeks, okay? First, at least six, you know, typically 12 weeks, I wanna say, but at least six weeks, it is pretty important to get up in the middle of the night and uh, either breastfeed your baby or pump remove milk, okay, to establish your milk supply, to keep your milk supply up. With that said, there are a select amount of people, if you have a super oversupply and you're pumping or you're breastfeeding in those first few weeks and you notice that you can go for a few extra hours overnight and still maintain your milk supply during the day, you may be one of those people that can do that. So I would say the answer to this question is if you are within that six to 12 week time period, yes, it's definitely important to remove milk in the middle of the night to keep your milk supply in terms of what time to get up. It doesn't necessarily matter, okay, as long as you're removing milk at least every three to four hours overnight, okay? We're gonna be breastfeeding our baby or pumping at least eight to 12 times per day in those first, especially in those first six weeks. And if that means that one of those chunks, one of those, you know, hour chunks is four hours overnight, then that's usually okay. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to get up every night at 2 a.m., as long as you're keeping, you know, being mindful of how many hours kind of it has been since you either pumped or breastfed your baby. With that said too, there is a surge of prolactin uh, that your bot that everybody everybody has in the middle of the night. It happens between two and four AM. So if you're waking up at that time and pumping or breastfeeding your baby at that time, you may notice that you're a lot more full or you get out a whole lot more output at that time if you're pumping. So some people like to time it around then, you know, get up every night at 3 a.m. or breastfeed or pump every night at 3 a.m. because that's when they have the most milk because that's when they have that surge. But I would say it's much more important to just keep track of how many hours it's been since you last pumped or breastfed your baby to keep to maintain that milk supply. All right, next question is, can you explain what stations mean? My midwife says I was minus two, negative two, at 36 weeks pregnant. Okay, so stations, when we talk about a cervical check, we are talking about three different things. Your cervix and how open it is, how far dilated it is, okay? Your effacement, and that is how thick the cervix is. And then we also assess the station, okay? And that's what this question is about. So when we talk about station, You want to think of your baby in relation to that bowl of your pelvis, okay? Everybody kind of knows what your pelvis, you know, the bones of your pelvis looks like. It's like a circle, okay? Or like kind of like an oval, okay? And that's where we're assessing station, okay? So when we talk about station, it's we go from minus four, really, I guess is the highest, minus four, minus five. So it goes from minus to plus, okay? And that zero station is that middle station, okay? And that middle station is kind of where those, that bony pelvis is, okay? So if you think about that's like zero, and then 
a minus station would be one centimeter-ish up. To a minus two station would be two centimeters up from that bony pelvis area. Th- minus three, three station would be three centimeters up and so on and so forth. When we get past that bony pelvis, and then we're talking about plus stations, okay? So plus one is, pl- you know, one centimeter below that bony pelvis, two centimeters is plus two, three centimeters is plus three, four, you know, four centimeters is plus four, you're about to have a baby. (laughs) So that's how we assess stations. And usually stations are assessed with a cervical check just by your fingers, you can kind of feel your pelvis when you do a cervical check, and we're feeling where baby's head is in relation to that pelvis. So if your provider is saying that you're a minus two station at you know, 36 weeks pregnant, that's normal. You want to, you want, most people are those minus stations before they go into labor. And then once labor hits, some, some people still stay at that minus two or minus one at the beginning of labor. As labor progresses, your body is pushing your baby down, your uterus is contracting, contracting and pushing baby down and decreasing that station down and down. But I would say minus two station at 36 weeks pregnant is perfectly normal. Some people will also be a minus one or even a zero station um, kind of before they even go into labor. Somebody with a zero stations, so their body is right in line with that pelvis with those bony, you know, prominent, it's like a little bony prominence that you can feel. And that's what we call zero station. If you're a zero station and you're not in labor yet, you might be having a whole lot of pelvic pain. (laughs) That's what we hear most often. But yeah, I hope I explained that right. Stations are kind of hard to explain just talking about them. I'm like moving my hands all around. I need like a like a visual aid. I need a marker (laughs) and a board, you know, to be able to draw stations and explain exactly which stations are. But that's kind of how they that's kind of how they work. All right, next question is, how long will your cervix stay dilated at 10 centimeters? Ooh, good question. Okay, so this is going to depend on everybody's uh, everybody's situation. So any everybody's going to be different. Some people, especially if you have an epidural, are going to get to 10 centimeters, especially if you have an epidural and it's your first baby. Some people are going to get to 10 centimeters and they're going to stay at 10 centimeters for a little while before they even start pushing. They're not really feeling too much pressure down there. Maybe they've got a good working epidural and we're just going to hang out and chill at 10 centimeters until your body pushes your baby down a little bit more, pushes the station down. We just talked about stations um, until you you know start to feel that urge to push and start to push your baby out. Uh, there are some people who can stay at 10 centimeters for hours before they have a baby. There are some people that will stay 10 centimeters dilated and push and be unsuccess- unsuccessful at having a baby vaginally and have a C-section. There are some people who will get to 10 centimeters and literally one minute later push their babies out. <laughs> it just really, really depends on your situation. All right, next question is, what are some good thank you gifts for the nurses? I'm 36 weeks on. That is so sweet. So this is what I always tell people. We never expect gifts. We never expect you guys to come in with anything or to send us anything. Um, But if you feel like you want to bring something or you want to do something for the nurses afterwards, we will always welcome gifts. We love gifts. (laughs) But certainly don't feel like you have to bring anything at all. So I will say, 
Personally, I think the best gift is just a little thank you note. Okay, since, you know, send it to the unit, uh, write your nurse's name up there and just say, thank you so much for taking care of me, blah, 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 you know, yada, yada, yada. Love so and so we're doing great. That's like, that's, that's honestly the best gift when I get a little thank you note from my patient saying, thank you for taking care of me. I love, love that. Um, with that said, some people like stuff. Okay. So if you're one of those and you just want to bring stuff or you want to, you know, uh, bring something afterwards for the nurses, we always like candy. Okay. Candy, gum, coffee. We always like coffee. Most units, I would say, we have like Keurigs or a coffee machine or something. So the coffee will not get wasted if you bring us coffee. All, almost every single nurse loves a good cup of coffee. <laughs> so some other things are gum, pens. We love pens. Socks. We love socks. <laughs> Chapstick, uh, lotion, hand sanitizer, even though God knows there's so much of it in the hospital, but you know, those little like tiny little hand sanitizer things you can get from Bath and Body Works. Nurses love those. (laughs) But yeah, I would say the best gift is definitely just a little, just a little thank you note. Some things I don't recommend are right now, baked goods, okay, because of COVID. Used to always love those, but sometimes there are restrictions depending on the place. You can't bring food from outside in, you know, that because of because of COVID, which we understand. So maybe baked goods aren't the best thing. Um, and that goes for other foods too, like a whole tray of sandwiches or dessert or something like that. Food in general, you know, unless it's wrapped up individually, um, might not be such a good idea right now because of COVID. All right. Next question is, is lightning crotch okay to have at 28 weeks? Ooh, girl. Yes. I think that's actually about when I started to feel it with Ryland. I think I remember texting one of my friends about it at about 28 weeks. And she said the exact same thing. She said, yep, I felt it about 28, 30 weeks. And then it kind of got a little bit worse. And then I didn't really feel it again, feel it again. And that might be you or you might be one of those that's feeling the lightning crotch, you know, up until you deliver your baby. But I would say it all for me, it kind of peaked around that point, And then it kind of went away. So those of you who don't know what lightning crotch is. So lightning crotch is I mean, it's really exactly what it sounds like. It feels like a little electric shock in your vagina. And it's very normal and it's very common. Most pregnant women feel it at one at some point. It usually only lasts a few seconds. Okay, if it lasts for a long time, it's probably not lightning crotch. And definitely go get that checked out. Okay, but if it just lasts a few seconds and it's just like, whoa, a big sting, um, probably lightning crotch. So, to answer your question, 28 weeks, perfectly normal to have it at this point. Okay. All right. Next question is, is it possible to do skin to skin immediately after a C-section? I felt like it was forever to see my baby. Oh, I'm so sorry. So it kind of depends. Okay. In most situations, if you are stable, baby is stable, um, it is perfectly okay to do skin to skin in the OR if there is adequate staffing around to help. Okay, so the only time that if, you know, you were healthy, baby was healthy, healthy, everything's going routine and okay. The only time that you couldn't do skin to skin is if 
there was not a staff member to supervise uh, you to help you know to really help you do skin to skin and stay right there. But in most cases, you can do skin to skin as long as you are okay, as long as your vital signs are okay, and as long as baby's okay. And we absolutely encourage it. This is something too that I would ask your provider about during your prenatal care if this is something that is important to you. If you're having a C-section to do skin to skin in the OR and just you know run that by them and ask them if that is a common practice. I would say most hospitals nowadays are trending towards where they want to do skin to skin in the OR as soon as possible, but there are still some hospitals that are kind of late to the game. Um, so I would just run this one by your provider too, just to ask them, you know, kind of what their standard practice is. All right, we only got a few more questions, guys. This next question is, how often is your nurse typically in the room? Is COVID changing this at all? So your nurse uh, is, it depends on what you're coming into the hospital for. But if you are coming into labor and you are actively laboring, you are usually going to be one-to-one with your nurse. Okay, so she's going to be in there almost the whole time that you're in labor, okay, unless you don't want her in there <laughs> for whatever reason, you know, you're in the bathtub laboring with your partner and you don't, you know, really want or need your nurse in there or your labor, you know, for whatever reason you don't want her in there, that's okay. But I would say for a normal patient, I'm checking on my patient at least every 15 minutes while they're in labor, unless they are, they have an epidural and they're sleeping and it's the middle of the night or, you know, I'm not trying to bother them. Maybe I'll come and check on them every hour if they're not in active labor quite yet, but I'm coming in there pretty, pretty often usually. Okay. Every, every 15 minutes, um, if they're actively laboring, at least, I mean, that's, that even sounds like too far, you know, too, too, much time in between. I'm usually in my patient's room like all the time. <laughs> like I said, unless they don't want me in there for what, for whatever reason. Most hospitals nowadays, all, all hospitals nowadays have call bells too. So if you're in your room and you want your nurse in there for whatever reason, you can just hit your call bell and your nurse will come right in. But I do have to chart on baby about every 15 minutes to every 30 minutes depending on situation, what type of medications you're on, or if you have a, if I have an epidural. So I'm going to be in there, you know, to chart on baby. But yeah, I would say expect to see your nurse a whole lot <laughs> in regards to COVID. Okay. That as, as far as I've seen, it has not really changed the frequency that I'm going into my patient's room. Okay. The only thing that I'm doing differently is I'm wearing a mask when I'm going in my patient's room. Uh, you know, I'm still washing my hands just as much as I did before COVID, but I have a mask and I wouldn't worry as much about your nurse not coming into your room, um, you know, or I wouldn't worry about your nurse coming into your room less frequently because of COVID, because that's just not, not even a factor. All right, next question is, where in the arm is a saline lock IV usually in place? Are there different placements? Uh, are different placements better for movement? Okay, so 
with a saline lock, does everybody know what a saline lock is? It's just a little IV access that you'll have. Saline lock is IV access not hooked up to a line. So you, it's just a little lock on your arm. They have your IV in place, but you're not hooked up to anything. So these, I like to do them. The only place I really don't like to do them are in the, is in the bend of your arm. And that is just because if you're bending your arm a whole lot during labor, you know, you're pushing really hard with your bent arm, your IV can kind of get messed up. Okay. So we like to avoid that place, but any other place, you know, below that area. So on your forearm, on the back of your forearm, on your hand, or on even on your wrist is usually okay. Most nurses are going to go for the best place that they see fit, okay? Um, If you're really opposed to one place, then just let your nurse know. Let's say you have um, a big aversion to IVs in your hands. That's common that people really don't like to get them in their hands because it for some people it hurts a whole lot more because you have lots of bones in your hands. Some people don't have, personally, I, I was just in the hospital like a couple weeks ago. I told you guys because I had pneumonia and I had one in my hand and I had one in my, in the bend of my arm. And I'll tell you what, the one in my hand hurt way less than the one in, my, in the bend of my arm. So I disagree with that, but there are certainly people who are very opposed to hand IVs and that's okay. Um, just let your nurse know about that. But yeah, I would say that most of the time, We're just going to try and get the best place possible. I tend to like to avoid uh, the wrist sometimes too, because I feel like that, that for whatever reason can sometimes get in the way of everything too, especially when you um, talk about afterwards and you're breastfeeding um, and you're holding your baby, that wrist IV just for some reason seems to get in the way. So I like to either do the hand or do somewhere on your forearm or the back of your forearm. All right. And the final question is, are there any TV shows about labor and delivery? <laughs> That's a cute little question. <laughs> All right. So I think the most popular one that most people think of when they think of labor and delivery is called the midwife. And okay, maybe, maybe this is like, I'm calling myself out, but I don't watch that show. Not because I don't like it. I just I don't know. I just, I just never really turned it on. (laughs) I think I've watched one episode, like kind of half watched one episode, but maybe this is like a sign that I need to start watching that show because I've heard such good things about that show. But yeah, Call the Midwife. I think that one's on Netflix and that is just a drama. It's not reality TV or anything. It's just a drama about, about midwives. (laughs) All right. So another one is a show called One Born Every Minute. Some of you guys might know that show too. It's just a, um, it, it is a, that, that one's not a drama. That one's like actual real situations, <laughs> real, real births. Um, so that one is on Lifetime and I think it takes place at a, let's see, it says a maternity ward in Riverside Methodist Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. That one I have turned on and that one is, that one is a pretty good show. Another one Okay, we all know a baby story, right? From TLC. I don't know that they even do that show anymore. Um, but that show, it, it says it first aired in 1998. Wow. Yeah, I was just going to say, I used to watch the show in middle school. So a baby story is uh, similar to that show, One Born Every Minute, but it it's, it's kind of more like a uh, 
Uh, They're telling the story kind of before mom goes to the hospital too. And then another one. (laughs) I didn't know I was pregnant. (laughs) We know that show. Come on. If you don't know that, if you don't know that show, you you definitely should uh, watch a few episodes of that show because it's wild. And that show I don't think is on anymore either. It says between 2009 and 2011. Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) So it's exactly what it sounds like, that it's these stories of women who give birth um, and they didn't know that they were pregnant or they know that they were, they knew that they were pregnant very shortly before they gave birth. Like they found out the day of or the week before they gave birth. But most of them, it's very dramatic situations where they go into labor and they don't even, they didn't even know that they were pregnant and they think that they're dying or they think that, you know, something serious is, you know, serious is going on. Um, and then they get up to the hospital and they say, oh, you're in labor. You're about to have a baby. And everyone is very surprised. It's a very entertaining show. <laughs> and it, it, when I, I remember when I first started watching that show, I thought these people were crazy. Um, and I thought that there is absolutely no way that somebody could go nine months and not know that they were pregnant. Um, but yeah, definitely has happened. Definitely has happened. I've definitely had some patients come up uh, to have babies and they did not know that they were pregnant <laughs> before. So yeah, certainly happens. So yeah, that is it for this episode of the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed me talking for however long it's been now. <laughs> Um, so to wrap up this year, next episode is going to be really, really special. And if you're listening right now to the very end of this episode, you get a spoiler of what next week's episode is going to be. So next week, I'm actually going to have my mom come on and talk about the birth story of me when I was born. And I'm also going to have my sister on all three of us are going to be on and just just talk. Um, But I thought that was a cool way to wrap up 2020 to have my own mom come and talk about when I was born (laughs) and her birth story of me. And she's also probably going to talk about my sister's birth too, and how those uh, were different because they were very, very different. So if you're interested in that, stay tuned, it will come out next week, and it will be the very last episode of 2020. All right, I'll see you guys on the next one.